0: My name is Blanche, and I'm a member of a worldwide fellowship known as Al-Anon. Hi. I have been a member of the Al-Anon family groups since July 7th, 1964, but I have been addicted to mood-changing, mind-altering men ever since I can remember. (laughs) A little identification out there, huh? Thirty years makes me a survivor, not a savior. And I say that to remind myself of it on a regular basis. At all times, I'm one person away from an obsession, and I have to remember that. I do want to thank you so much for this invitation. Uh, I have looked forward to being with you. I'm going to take the time to tell you some things about the last 48 hours. I have a point to make. This is not a complaint. It's, I'm giving you information. <laughs> I've done this great many places for a great many years, and there are people who say to me, oh, it must be so glamorous and exciting to fly from place to place and meet all those people. Well, now, in the last 48 hours, I have had six flights that were late, three that were canceled, these due to thunderstorms, I had a suitcase sent to Washington, D.C. instead of Jacksonville, Florida, I have walked through two rainstorms, which um, explains the lack of hairdo, I spent three hours standing in line getting three schedules rearranged. I went to my aunt's funeral, which I'll talk about in a minute, and there was a race from the cemetery to the airport in order for me to get the plane out of Jacksonville. So I flew all day yesterday wearing a suit and high heels and stockings, which I don't usually wear for sprinting through airports, you know? I got into Phoenix this morning at 2 o'clock my time, They had had a storm. I didn't know it ever rained in Phoenix. I had said to people, all right, all these storms are delaying us in the southeast, but hey, weather won't be a factor in Phoenix. (laughs) Uh, There was an electrical outage, and the young man who drove me to the Holiday Inn spoke very little English, but he managed to make it clear that he was driving. No one had any traffic lights, and there were no street lights. And there was an absolutely horrendous automobile crash about 20 feet from us as we were getting to the hotel. The uh, hotel was dark. There was no electricity. They had, I'm not making this up. They had had flashlights. Um, With no electricity, elevators don't work. I don't do stairs too well. I have uh, some arthritic knees that I've tried to explain. It's from all that praying I do, but no one's ever believed that. And it was while I was climbing six flights in my high heels and my suit with the bellboy with one flashlight that I thought, how glamorous, how exciting. The room had no light and worse than that, no air conditioning. Um, I chose not to try to shower and shampoo in the dark. (laughs) And when I got to the airport to come on in here this morning, I had no ticket for this last leg of my journey. My travel agent usually does a superb job, but this was very quick. I mean, I had to leave very suddenly. And so I got here. We were an hour late, and I couldn't find anyone there to meet me for a few minutes. And... (laughs) I got to thinking, everything, just almost everything that happens to me is a result of choices that I make. The aunt whose funeral I had attended was very, very dear to me. When my mother and father were divorced, my mother and I lived with her for two and a half years. And before that, she wasn't yet married, and everyone should have a maiden aunt. Who loves her. Uh, This was back during the Depression, and she bought me things. I I would never have had a store-bought coat, you know, but for her. And my first roller skates, and of course I had to be there, of course. All of my family lives in Florida, and I thought, even as I climbed the stairs in the dark, I thought, I'm really just between families, you know. I left that one there, and a source of great love, oh, so much love there, and I was coming to my other family here, you know, with so much love, and so it did take me 48 hours to get here, and it was an ordeal, and it wasn't glamorous and exciting, but I'm ready to share some recovery, and I hope you are. I was in Taos, New Mexico last September, and they had buttons and signs and bumper stickers that said a good conference is like an orgy. When it's over you don't know who made you feel good. I almost didn't tell you that. I mean I'm really stodgy and uh, it's even funnier coming from me. But, you know, I mean, we'll all go home tomorrow, so what? of What? is the But I think a lot of people will make us feel good this weekend. I don't like missing part of a conference when I'm part of it. And I've tried to tell myself that uh, some things are unavoidable. You know, I kept thinking I could fix it all, including the weather. I am not well yet. <sighs> well... I have been trying for a number of years now when I'm allowed to, to share Al Anon in other places, to be as open and as honest and as vulnerable as I know how to be. You see, it would be easier to tell you what I think than how I feel, and it would be easier for me to lecture about Al Anon principles than to uh, talk about myself. But I want to share with you, I don't want to lecture. You told me years ago that that which does not come from the heart does not reach the heart. And I very much want to reach your hearts this afternoon. So I'm going to talk to you from mine. Those of us who stand on these podiums behind these lecterns are very emotionally vulnerable while we're up here. We are risking rejection. We are risking being misunderstood. And I have become shameless through the years in asking for what I need. And what I need is you loving me back while I'm talking. I came to participate in your weekend, you know, not to perform. And I never talk without using some notes. If you have a problem with that, I suggest you call your sponsor and discuss acceptance. (laughs) Yes, I know God can tell me what to say. But he is not limited to doing that the minute I step up here, you know. I've known for a year and a half I was coming. It'd be rather foolish if I got here and didn't have some idea what I was going to say. But if you could hear me talk without notes, you would be so glad I have some. (laughs) I also have found that it's hard to tell my story once or twice a month. You're in and you're out. And uh, tell a different one. I only have one story. And I can't go out and do it over again, so I'll have something different to tell you. Besides, I would rather you leave here thinking, what a marvelous program, than what a marvelous speaker. I really would. I came into Al-Anon, as many of you have heard me say, kicking, screaming, clutching my halo, wrapping my robes of righteousness about me, protesting to everyone who would listen that I was fine. Thank you. And if we had sobriety at our house, we wouldn't have any problems. I can't say that with a straight face now, but I meant it then, you know. I've always been grateful that God led me to a group of people who were serious about recovery. A group of people who wanted to get well. And what I know of Al-Anon principles today, I know not because someone read them to me, recited them to me, but because they were practiced on me lovingly, tenderly, by people who loved me when I was unlovable and who forgave me when my behavior was patronizing and condescending and I was very unlovable. I found out early on that Alaron is not a ladies' auxiliary or a coffee clatch or a stitch and bitch club that <laughs> And I don't know whether you have this problem out here but we do in Texas and I have taken to just saying this when I talk because it seems to be a universal problem. Well-meaning members of AA and I think they just truly haven't thought it through, sometimes refer to any non-alcoholic in their family as an Al-Anon. That's like referring to a still-drinking alcoholic as a member of AA. An Al-Anon is a member of an Al-Anon family group who attends meetings, regularly reads the literature, works the steps, you know, has a sponsor. If you hear anyone else, non-alcoholic or otherwise, talking about the Al-Anon program, don't listen. Those people are uninformed. They are not carrying the message. They are spreading the disease. Anyway, I learned that we were not coffee makers and cookie bakers, and above all, we are not AA groupies. Neither are we any even claimed to be a therapeutic tool for the treatment of alcoholism, not ever. And Al-Anon does not promise to save marriages, only sanity, When I got to you, I thought both those were in good shape, but I lived to learn better than that. What I have learned is that happily ever after may not mean walking hand in hand into the sunset together. Happily ever after means my personal recovery. And that's what I want to share with you. This program is for me. The analogy I always use is that of my mother's illness and death. We had been with you a year. I was in Texas, she was in Florida. I had managed to fly back four times the last six months of her life. I absolutely adored her. I know it's not fashionable to love your family, so sue me. Um, I just thought she was wonderful. (laughs) And I didn't see how I could stand this. And I had stepped out into the hall because I was crying so hard. And the woman I've never seen before or since, I don't know how she knew who I was, but she beckoned me into her room across the hall. And when I went in, she said, your mother's going to be all right. And I said, you don't understand, her illness is terminal. She said, I didn't say she's going to get well. I said she's going to be all right. And my mother did not get well, and she has been all right ever since. Now, it was very much like that when I got to you. No one said it in these words but somehow I heard, you're going to be all right. And if you had said that to me, I would have said, oh, you don't understand, I have a barely sober husband. And you would have said, we didn't say anything about a sober husband. We said, you're going to be all right. Or I would have said, I have a very shaky, fragile marriage. And you would have said, we didn't say anything about a marriage. We said, you're going to be all right. Because at some level, somehow that's what I heard. And I have been. And better than that, I'm convinced that I will be. Our literature tells us how to make an Al-Anon talk. I haven't memorized it yet. It says al talks can be, and too often are, merely a repetition of past or present sorrows. Now, sketching the background is important and has its place, but it's merely the foundation of the talk. The best Al-Anon talk. The one that helps the most people to the highest degree is the one that brings out just how the program works and just how the speaker follows it. A good talk is divided into three parts how sick I was, how well I am, and what helped me to get well. Of these three, the emphasis should be on what helped me to get well. Unquote. I've always agreed with Father Martin, who says when he's sitting out there and you're standing up here, he says, you're playing with my life. Don't tell me how sick you were without telling me how well you are. And so in the time I have with you this afternoon, I want to talk a great deal about what has helped me to get well. But to sketch the background, I was born on my grandmother's farm in northeast Florida, almost to the Georgia border. And I no longer say which year. I, uh, I have reached... The point where I not only lie about my age, but I forget what I said that it was, you know? (laughs) I'll just tell you that I'm somewhere between Blue Lagoon and on Golden Pond. (laughs) Or in the current vernacular, I'm not old, I'm chronologically challenged. (laughs) We were not tourists in Florida. My family had been there four generations. When I was born, I saw at my aunt's funeral grandnieces that make our seventh generation there. Tourist was a bad word when I was growing up. Anytime I behaved in a manner my mother considered inappropriate, she would say, Don't act like a tourist. <laughs> there are still things I cannot do, things I cannot wear, because that's what tourists did, you know. We lived in Jacksonville on the Georgia border and on the Atlantic side of the state until I was 10. Then we lived in Pensacola on the Alabama border on the Gulf side until I was grown and married. And I I think of Pensacola as my hometown because that's of course where we lived the longest. And it's also where I went back to, you know, all those years after you marry and you take the children back to see their grandparents. We we lived those first ten years in Jacksonville in grinding and abject poverty. My alcoholic father, whom I adored, was violent. I was never, thank God, sexually abused, but I was a badly, badly battered child. And uh, because, I guess, of what was going on at our house, When I say poverty, I mean we didn't have enough food for days on end. We had inadequate clothing and shelter, and we lived in a very blighted part of the city. But even there, the neighborhood children were not allowed to play with me. I I know that their parents must have, you know, been a little apprehensive about what was going on at my house, but when you're five and six years old, you don't think of that. I just felt rejection and rage. And I wanted to get back at them. I'm sorry, that's the way it was. We all went to the same neighborhood school, and I could beat the socks off of them, and I loved it. I relished every time it happened. And that became my way up and out, you know. That wasn't a good motive, but there was a good byproduct from that. I absolutely fell in love with learning, and I have never fallen out of love with it. Throughout my life, it has been a constant factor. My parents were divorced when I was eight. This is when we lived with the aunt I mentioned. And my mother remarried just before I was 11. And a man that, as it happened, didn't drink at all. We had no luxuries, but at least we had the necessities of life then. And college was considered a luxury. And besides, I wanted to go to Baylor University, which is in Texas. That's how I got to Texas. And it was and is a very expensive private university. And my mother said, well, it's all right with me if you want to go to school in Texas, but a couple of things you need to think about. One is you will have to pay for it yourself. Well, I knew that. And she said, the other is that you'll spend the rest of your life out there because she said you'll end up marrying a Texan and they don't transplant. (laughs) And I told her I was going to do no such thing, but I did, and they don't, and I haven't, so. (laughs) What can I tell you? I worked a year between high school and college. I worked at college. I worked every summer. I had one loan. It was private. We didn't have student loans back then before the earth cooled, you know. (laughs) And uh, one scholarship. And I have stayed in Texas now you're close enough here in the Southwest to understand that Texas is a state of mind. Um, People in Texas have never forgotten that they were a nation, and that's the kind of pride that they feel. It comes out a little later in my story that I was a counselor for some years in a little country school. I had kindergarten through twelfth grade, and in the elementary school of that district When boys and girls pledged allegiance to the American flag every morning, they turn, they still do, and pledge allegiance to the Texas flag. This happens in elementary schools all over Texas. When I first saw that, I thought it was a bit much. And then I decided, hey, there's nothing wrong with loyalty. And they love where they live, okay? I mean, I hope you love where you live. I love where I live, anyway. (laughs) My father-in-law, an ardent Texan, well, I don't know any other kind, uh, used to say he brought up his children never to ask the man where he was from. Because he said if he's from Texas, he'll tell you, and if he's not, it's not nice to embarrass him. (laughs) Isn't that awful? (laughs) I know, I know. We have now a governor and a lieutenant governor who, by their own admission, are recovering alcoholics. My husband used to say that makes everyone in Texas eligible for Al-Anon. We're all being affected by alcoholics. <laughs> I know now it was inevitable that I marry an alcoholic, but I want you to know I tried not to. I did not want to suffer as I had seen my mother suffer. And so I just didn't date anyone who drank. And I thought that would guarantee it. Now, that wasn't hard at Baylor. It's kind of a Baptist convent, you <laughs> know, but uh, I don't know. I used to say, I don't think Charles had had a drink when we married. Later on, he said that when he was in graduate school in Chicago, he had an MBA from Northwestern, that he did some drinking up there. But I had never seen him have a drink, and I thought I was safe. And uh, it remained for you to tell me years later that drinking is only a symptom of this illness. And you said it's as if he had had tuberculosis, but he had not yet started to hemorrhage. You this symptom had just not manifested yet. But of course I found an alcoholic to marry. Uh, I know now that sick people marry sick people, and they rear sick children, and I hope you won't let anyone tell you anything different. I yeah. accumulated several thousand kids over the years I was teaching and counseling, and I had any any number of them from alcoholic homes. I was one myself, and I reared a couple of them. I don't believe we can come unscathed out of an alcoholic home. Well, we married, lived in Corpus Christi, then in San Antonio, which is beautiful. If you're ever in Texas, don't miss San Antonio. Our babies were born there. It's a beautiful old city. Then we moved out to West Texas to my husband's hometown, Odessa. Uh, I thought I had gone to the end of the world. The... uh, this, the scenery around there is sort of like the landscape of the moon. Okay, my mother, my mother called it all desolate.
1: <laughs>
0: but I uh, have to tell you because it figures prominently in our recovery that I have never known people like that. West Texas people don't know there's anything they can't do, and so they do it. They are a breed apart. I have tremendous love and admiration for them. And I'm grateful because that's where we got our sickest. And that's where we found you. And it was, at least then, just a hotbed of enthusiasm as far as the program goes. During those years of of Charles drinking, looking back, I know I had some slogans I lived by before you gave me better ones. Uh, One was, what will people think? Did you ever have that one? Don't rock the boat. How about it's not that bad yet? Did you ever play Guess What I'm Mad About? (laughs) Charles used to say I could ask him a question, answer it myself, and go away mad. I did all the wrong things during those years, and I kept on doing them. During lunch, uh, Pat and Nikki and I were talking football, of course. <laughs> it, it, you don't understand unless you've been to Texas. It's second only to oxygen in importance, and there are days I wonder which, you know. <laughs> and um, I think everyone there is, certainly everyone I know, is an odd football fan, and that includes high school football. Um, I had a cleaning woman who was just as fanatical about football as the rest of us, and she used to watch football during the season when she ironed, and she never caught on to instant replay. And she used to say, maybe this time he'll catch it. And I would look at that and think, that's what I was like, you know. Nothing I'd ever done before stopped his drinking, but maybe this time, you know, it would... Just about that uh, unwilling to admit any kind of powerlessness, <laughs> I protected him, I rescued him, I lied for him. He was almost literally loved to death, and that can happen. I was as obsessed with him as he was compelled to drink. I would like you to think I stayed with him out of love and loyalty. I did not. I stayed with him out of pride in a little what? Deep Deep South upbringing was, at least for women of my generation. Northern Florida is Southern. Now, Southern Florida is very Northern. I visit my daughter in St. Petersburg, and I can't even get grits, you know? Listen, when I I was there, just for 24 hours, I was there for the funeral, and I had boiled peanuts and scuppered on grapes, and you just don't know what that does for your psyche. I once said to my children, what will soul food be to you when you're grown? What, what food will fill you emotionally as well as physically and make you think of home and mother?" They said barbecue, potato salad, pinto beans. <laughs> you know, I think we all have whatever we grew up with is the, the food that satisfies us more than just with physical hunger. Anyway, this upbringing was... Uh, specific. And it wasn't all bad. Now, the the phony part, I think, was uh, people had to think you had to look good. Do you remember that? And yet there were some parts of it. you uh, You didn't air your dirty linen in public. And I still have relatives who can't understand how I can get up to you and talk about such personal things. And I say, that's not the public. Uh, they, um, they think this is very bad taste. You know? <laughs> I have two brothers who don't understand why I do this. I was taught keep the men happy and everything else falls into place. Now, that's not totally bad. If, if uh, they had added you don't give up big chunks of your own personhood to do that, but they didn't. I was taught by precept and example, you know, Blanche Marie, repeat after me. Women are a a good woman. Is a lady in the parlor, a wizard in the kitchen, a hussy in the bedroom. And that's all right. But I wish someone had said, it's not up to anyone else to see that your needs are met. You know, that's your job. It isn't God's assignment to anyone on earth to make you happy. I was a steel magnolia long before there was a play and a movie by that name. It was understood that in the South we could flutter our eyelashes and flash our dimples and swish our skirts, but we were made of steel and we could cope. Do you remember Scarlett O'Hara in the Sweet potato Field? I'll never be hungry again. You know, that kind of coping. And so, of course, I stayed with him. I thought I'll just try harder. I hadn't yet heard you say we don't try to force solutions. I was certainly trying to force them. I'm sure you get the Charlie Brown cartoon strips up here. And one of them, Charlie Brown, is teaching his little sister, Sally, long division. And she says, how many times will 24 go into 12? He says, 24 won't go into 12. And she says, "It well, if you push. That was me. (laughs) See, I had a very inauspicious beginning. And I had managed to attend and pay for myself an expensive university where I think I got a splendid education and where I certainly had for very happy years i married the man i wanted and he was brilliant and handsome and could be charming i had the children i wanted when i wanted them and they are altogether remarkable which i'll try to convince you in a few minutes and i had a career that i loved and did well and i didn't understand people who messed up their lives and it was later when i uh, had a sponsor who heard the self-righteousness in this, who would say, Blanche, we are not morally superior to sick people. And she would have me say it over and over and over. Well, I did a few things right during those years. I used to say by accident, I think it was by the grace of God, I never called him a drunk. I was married to a very fine man who drank too much. I knew at some level that he was sick I didn't know that word for it, but I knew he wouldn't be this way if he had a choice. I knew he had lost the power of choice. And even during those six years, I had a God whom I worshipped and served. Not God as I understand him this afternoon, but if I live another 30 years, and after last night in Phoenix, I'm not at all sure I will, (laughs) but I hope hope my understanding of God will have broadened and, and deepened. And I had a doctor back then that was my al before I got to you. And I say that because he really told me the things that you told me. He gave me permission to take care of myself a little bit. And he knew how to do it. He knew just which button to push. He would say, uh, you know, your children need one stable parent anyway. Well, need was the operative word. If you needed me, I was petty in your hands. I still have a little problem with that. <laughs> And he was the one, the doctor, who suggested that I return to teaching. I had taught before my children were born, but the rules said a good mother back then didn't work outside her home. And I did stay home with him for 12 years, and I'm very glad I was able to do that. But I loved teaching, and I missed it. And we had been with you a year, I guess. No, it was a year before we got to you that, I went back to teaching. He wrote it on a prescription pad, you know, Returned to teaching. I used to tell my students they were doctor's prescription. Um, I taught English in a very fine, very affluent high school and had a wonderful time. I always say when I talk, don't criticize kids to me. I think I know more of them than you do. And um, I know a lot of them who have trouble growing up. But my world is full of people who have trouble growing up, you know. Um, I like so much about the thinking of that generation. My generation was not at all concerned, for instance, about this planet on which we live. And theirs is. And, uh, oh, well, it was a one long honeymoon. There were days I wished for retroactive birth control, you know, but not, not usually... Teaching English to 17-year-olds in Texas means you teach American literature and research and, um, of course, some, some grammar and some writing, but primarily it is literature. And I want to tell that to people who, when they found out that I was an English teacher, clapped their hands over their mouths and refused to say anything the rest of the day. I uh, don't correct anyone's English unless I'm paid for it. And <laughs> Well, there's a few exceptions I'll tell you about in a little while. <laughs> Charles never stopped trying to find an answer. And uh, we didn't suspect alcoholism, we thought mental illness, because we knew something was dreadfully wrong. He went to ministers, he went to lay counselors, he went to both our local psychiatrists, he went through clinics, he did everything we knew to do. And finally, a business acquaintance of his commented that we had a counselor in Odessa at that time, uh, a psychologist who was uh, having a lot of success helping people with strange symptoms, he went to see her, and she's the first person that said alcoholic. She called me, in fact, after he'd been seeing her about six weeks. I knew her name, of course, when she identified herself on the phone. He hadn't told me anything they had talked about, and that's as it should be. But uh, she said to me, your husband is an alcoholic. I need to talk to you, too. And all of my deep south upbringing went out the window. And I said, you're out of your mind and hang up. Now, I was brought up that if you don't like somebody, you're kind but cool. And I wasn't either of those words, you know, in any of their meanings. Before I could leave the room, the phone rang again. And when I picked it up, before I could say hello, she said, don't hang up. I know what you've been through. Well, she couldn't know. I hadn't told anybody. (laughs) You know, it wasn't good taste to tell people these things. And I remember standing there with the phone in my hand and crying and crying. I thought all the tears had long since been shed, but obviously not. So she asked to talk to me, and we did both go talk to her, and it was she who sent us to you. And, oh, I came in, heels dug in, so reluctantly, so angrily. It was... um But I know the reasons now why I was resisting you so much. One was I was a real intellectual snob. Now, I'm I'm intelligent. I'm not intellectual, but I thought I was. If you had given me the programming words of ten syllables, I would have heard you sooner. But because it was simple, I thought it was easy. (laughs) And you know those slogans? If any of my students had used those, I would have written in the margin trite, you know, (laughs) cliché. I had a real problem, besides which I need to tell you that I had married considerably above myself. Charles used to say I shouldn't say that, but I had. I would m- married into a family that had money and prestige, and listen, there was nobody not allowed to play with me anymore. And I was afraid if I went down there to that building with those people, you know, I would lose all of that. I had been uh, praying for help, but I thought God was showing very poor taste. This wasn't at all what I had in mind. So for six months, I went only to open AA meetings, and if anyone had the bad judgment to invite me to Al-Anon, I was kind but cool, and I explained that I had not done the drinking and I didn't need the therapy, thank you. (laughs) We went to San Antonio for the 4th of July weekend. I told you we loved it and went back whenever we could, and Charles got drunk, and he said, I must always tell you it was not a slip. It was a carefully planned drunk. We were driving home afterwards, and, uh, you know, I think about it now. I wasn't surprised. I didn't really expect him to quit drinking. Don't you know that attitude helped him a lot? To his credit, he never drove drunk or hungover. And I was driving back to West Texas, and he said, I'm going to have to tell my group about this. I'm due to get a six-month chip next week. Do your groups give little mementos of sobriety? Ours gave poker chip key rings. In my appalling ignorance, I said, I won't tell anybody. And he had to explain to me that wasn't what it was about. And i tell you that to say this. We've been married 14 years at that time, and this man had never once said to me, I'm sorry, I was wrong, I made a mistake. And in essence, he was going to go down there and say that to some people he had known six months, and it made me mad. I figured I'd go take another look at them. See, I wanted to be the one to get him sober. Then he would have owed it all to the love of a good woman. <laughs> and he would have been grateful to me the rest of his life. And you may be sure I would have seen to it that he was. <laughs> and I used to say, I don't know why the invitation to attend al coming from a particular woman, reached me. But I have done, in these thirty years, three, I think, very thorough and comprehensive fourth and fifth steps. And with my very one, God revealed to me more about myself than I was interested in knowing. And uh, one, of, one of the things I realized was the reason why I could hear her. And rigorous honesty requires that I tell you, and I'd rather not, this was the woman I thought was as good as I was. I mean, I'm sorry. It takes what it takes. This was a woman who had everything I considered important. You know, beauty, breathing, brains, status, prestige, money. She still has everything I consider important, but it's a different list this afternoon. And so I went, and I didn't hear anything for months and months. And Charles was stark, raving sober, and no longer held back by guilt for mentioning my defects loudly and clearly and frequently. And we had just a really hard time for... Eighteen months, two years. Worse than anything we'd ever had drinking, we had no pink cloud. I learned later that when the alcohol is gone, the ism remains. And then this overlay of fantasy was so hard for me to give up. We are a normal family, you know. We are all right. And I was struggling with that as he was struggling with his own illness. I think about the shape I was in when I got to you. Yes, I was coping. Boy, you could ask anybody. I was managing everybody and everything. Charles Rinking was the first thing I'd ever run across that I couldn't control. <laughs> Since then, I haven't found very many things I can, but at the time, it seemed to me I was doing just fine. I know now that it's... Uh... I didn't verbalize this at the time. And look, we're not in competition as to who suffers more, Okay. But I will uh, match against anyone's suffering that of watching someone you love with every cell of your being killing himself and being helpless to stop him. You can't live with pain like that. And so what I did, I know now, was act as if feelings had faucets, you know, valves. And I could turn off the one marked fear. I could turn off the one marked anger or self-pity. And what I didn't know was there's one valve and it's marked feelings. And I got to you absolutely emotionally frozen. And you loved me until I could love myself. And I began to fall. I see newcomers come in now with all the defenses. And, and newcomers get in with a, with a coat of armor on, you know, and a shield because they're, you're not going to hurt them, and a sword because they're very hostile. I was. And I used to bang at people's defenses, let me in, I want to be your friend. I don't do that anymore. I think that's kind of an emotional rape, you know. But what I know today is that if anyone looks out from the chink in the armor and notices that the natives are friendly, sometimes the person feels safe enough to put down the sword. And after the hostility is eased and the person feels safe enough, sometimes he puts down the shield. At least that's the way it happened with me. And I began to hear the program and not all at once and not from just one person. Listen, alcoholism was not trendy in 1964. It was not the end thing to be alcoholic. There were not celebrities touting it from the rooftops. There were not treatment centers on every corner. Insurance wouldn't pay for it then. There, there was not an announcement every 30 minutes on television, and nobody knew the whole family was sick. There was a terrible stigma attached to the word alcoholic. I mentioned, I mentioned being a counselor. I'd been visiting with a first grader a few years ago, and darling little boy, I was taking him back to his classroom, and he said, my teacher's not here today. I said, yes, I noticed. And he said, oh, she's sick. I said, uh-huh. He said, they sent another teacher. I said, they surely did. He said, when I'm sick, they don't send another little boy. <laughs> and I thought, oh, honey, <laughs> you know, the times you will wish you could send someone else. Well, they didn't send another sick Alan to recover for me either. And so I decided no one could work the program for me, and it was up to me to get well. My group used to say, we don't hear the answer to well, we've asked the question. And if you know everything, which I did, and you know people like that, then you don't hear any answers. And my sponsor said, can you uh, get rid of a few old ideas? She said, "Uh, it's hard to tell somebody something who already knows it all. Uh, Maybe she said, you know, God can only fill an empty vessel. You can't put new wine in old bottles. And so very slowly I began to unlearn some of the things that uh, I had been taught that were erroneous, that were wrong. I have time to mention only a couple of them. I've been taught God helps those who help themselves. Were you taught that? That's not true, you know. God helps those who ask. And I, at the times I needed him most desperately, I could not have helped myself if my life had depended on it, and it very nearly did. God helps those who ask. I was brought up being told mature people stand on their own two feet, solve their own problems, don't ask for help. (laughs) You know, you can die believing that. I had a group that said, no, babies are dependent. They'll die if we don't take care of them. And they said, um, Adolescents are independent. I'll do it myself. It's a phase they have to go through. But they said, uh, mature people are happily interdependent. We don't mean a sick, clinging kind of neediness, okay? But we mean a, an ex- accepting the idea that God chooses to work through people and that we need each other. And uh, if you could see my long-distance charges, you would know that I learned to ask for help. If I can't make it through the night in Texas, California's still awake. I have a friend out there, Pat, who says that I only love her for her time zone. <laughs> if California's still even even California's asleep, there's always Hawaii. I have learned to ask for help. You told me I had a right to and a responsibility for taking care of myself emotionally that some pain is necessary for my spiritual education, but that misery is optional, and I don't opt to be miserable anymore. I no longer have to die on every cross. I was taught by some, some people growing up that you always put others first. Did you get that one too? And uh, my sponsor said, no, you don't have to do that. Every now and then you can say my turn. Now, she never did let me say me first. But she said it was all right if I said my turn. And I have a sponsor today, the first one moved across the country, who um, has taught me that when I'm facing a new or a difficult situation, she said uh, I must ask two questions. And the first one is, what's in my best interest? Can you believe that? You can't be a martyr and ask things like that. <laughs> and I have suffered, you know, so nobly, nobly. I... <sighs> I have a friend who swears that she had to have plastic surgery to remove her hand from her forehead when she got into Al-Anon. After I decide what's in my best interest, she says, I must ask, what will enable me to like myself later? And I have used these two questions time and time again. They got me through a very painful divorce in 1980. I wouldn't change one word I said or one thing I did. Wow, that feels good. But that's because you had told me, think about how you will feel later. And I was taught growing up, what you don't know can't hurt you. What I didn't know nearly destroyed four people. You know, what you don't know can kill you. And so item by item, I tried to let go of these things so that I could become an empty vessel that God could fill and I became very greedy for the program. I didn't want to settle for a spiritual band-aid, you know, when the immediate pain is eased. I didn't want to settle for crumbs when I knew there was a banquet spread. And I began to learn some spiritual laws from you that superseded the man-made laws I'd always followed so carefully. For instance, I think today, this is my opinion today, that the worst immorality is judgment. It's also my worst defect. I struggle with it on a daily basis. I have a friend who says to me, identify, don't judge. Identify, don't judge. I pray about it. I'll tell you one deterrent that's come about through the years. I began to notice that any time I was judgmental about a person and his, her actions, you know, I would never do, well, you'd never catch me. Well, you will. Uh, when I get that way, God seems to delight in sending me that situation to handle. And it is sooner rather than later. And I haven't stopped doing it, but at least I hear myself today. And I say, no, no, I didn't mean it. I don't want to handle that. No. <laughs> and, of course, I heard you saying that <laughs> we release, we detach. You said release with love. Well, I would, have tur- I would have turned him over to the Ku Klux Klan, you know, or the Communist Party, or anyone that would have taken him. And here again, I was told, no, no, you release him with love. <laughs> and that means you anger before I can with love. And sometimes I have to, even today, releasing is not easy for me. Sometimes I release with anger before I can with love. And sometimes I have to withdraw emotionally for a little while, you know, before I can let go. And anything I've ever released in my life has claw marks all over it. <laughs> but I'm better than I used to be. And I had to quit translating. Did you ever translate? (laughs) Honey, what your daddy meant was... mm -hmm. I could see how, how Charles had harmed our children. And my group made me look at how I had harmed them. We have a son and a daughter. I thought I couldn't stand it. You know, I would have died for them in a minute, as you would your children. And I would not knowingly have hurt them. I had a choice during those years. I could go or stay. Those kids had no choice. I harmed them in a number of ways, but the two worst ones was that for the first ten years of their lives, they were programmed by an enraged mother. I would change that if I could. I can't. And I was told that I had to learn to accept the woman I used to be. More than that, I had to learn to love her if I expected recovery, that she did the best she could at her level of enlightenment. And she really did, and so did you, you know? But even more than that, I think, was the damage I did them by denial. When they said to me that they had heard this or that during the night, this woman to whom they should have been able to turn for the truth under any circumstances, I would say, oh, honey, you didn't hear that. You had a bad dream. Why, no, everything's fine. Why do you think something's wrong? And I thought I was protecting them. And what I was doing was teaching them not to trust their judgment, not to trust their feelings, not to uh, believe what they knew to be true. My daughter says that even today, she has the idea that people you love will lie to you, because the people she loved did, you know. Well, I can't stand up here and meditate on it. <laughs> uh, Our children were in Alateen for ten years each. And um, there will be an especially wonderful place in heaven. When I'm in California, I say it, an especially beneficial karma for the, pe- for the people who sponsor Alateen. If I had time, I would tell you stories about having the kids in the program, too. It lends a whole new dimension to family living but I can't. Okay. Um, what else? I think what, what was hard at first, and is I hope second nature now, was getting my responsibilities straight. You know, I was not responsible for him or his disease, and I was so relieved when you told me that. And then you said in the next breath that you're entirely responsible for your own behavior, and I didn't want to hear that. Next to an alcoholic, anybody looks good. And I, you had removed my scapegoat, you know. My whipping boy. I could no longer blame it on this problem. <laughs> yeah. And people were praising him in those early years, you know. Six months, Charlie, hang in there, fella, you know. No one no one praised me. Uh, they hinted rather broadly that I could use some help. And <laughs> no one ever done that to me. I finally caught on that I could respond rather than react. I didn't know that I had been in emotional slavery. But if Charles got angry, I got angry. If he got depressed, I got depressed. I thought this meant we were close. (laughs) It was as if I woke up every morning and said to him, good morning, how do I feel today? Because it was entirely up to him. I don't do that anymore. I was told you can take your sails out of his wind. And neither he nor anyone else need determine the direction in which you go. In his defense, he never asked for this. You know, I just handed my self-worth to him on a platter. I said, what I think of me will depend on you. What a strange thing. But it was so natural then. We're told never to say never, never to say always. I hope I never do that again. I haven't, I haven't so far anyhow. <laughs> But I can choose my response, and it was important that I take the risk of being the person that I am. When I began talking to my sponsor about that, she always made me add, within the bounds of love and courtesy. You see, I can't ride roughshod over you and say, well, that's just how I am. Mm -mm. You get a Charles Manson, you know, when you do something like that. But within the bounds of love and courtesy, I can be the person I am. And it's emotionally expensive. It cost me a marriage. I hope it won't cost you that. But I submit for your consideration that being phony costs more. And I used to think I could be who I was in every area of my life except at home. And you can't. It's like a sock in the wash. You know, it bleeds over into every area of your life. I was taught by you that God is the source and people are the channels. And it's all right if I love the channel, but I need to remember the source. I try to do that today. I don't know why God chooses to use us, but he does, doesn't he? And that means I have to listen to other people because he speaks through people to me. I'm not being sarcastic here, but I don't see visions or hear voices. I think maybe some people do, but I don't. And that means I have to listen to people I don't like. You know, and and he could do better than that. (laughs) But I try to remember that he is the source and that only God can provide some things. People cannot provide total love, total acceptance, total understanding. It's not in us to have that to give to someone else. And i quit, I hope, expecting from people what only God can provide. And it was along about then I learned that I don't acquire squatter's rights on someone's life because I married it or gave birth to it. I didn't learn this program all at once, and I still don't have it all. I learned it slowly and painfully, incident by incident, one twenty-four hours at a time, and there are still days when I say, what program? God who? And when that happens, I call one of you, and you will tell me what program and God who. Usually in the words I've used with you, don't do that to me. You know, don't you hate it when people say, well, as you've told me. <laughs> let me digress a minute here. And, and once a teacher, always a teacher. But let me tell you why. Why we need to hear it from someone else. I know the words. You know, I know the words. And I can say to myself, what would you tell another al with this problem? And I know exactly what to say. But when you say it to me, underneath the words, I hear you saying, I love you. You matter to me. And when I tell it to myself, I don't hear that. And so I need to hear you say it, even if it's something I have told you. And when I can't figure out how to make it through the day, I will call one of you and you will tell me. And you tell me, and our literature tells me that I don't have to be perfect. The day will come when I believe that. I do know that practice makes progress and that recovery is progressive, too, and I'm entitled to have relapses. My favorite story of a relapse, and I guess I'll tell it till I get a better story about a relapse, happened some years ago. I was in Dallas visiting my son, and it was a bright, sunshiny day, I guess. uh, I have no excuse, but we were going down the stairs outside his condo, and my arthritic knee buckled, and I fell down the stairs. And uh, it was a very bad fall. I was unconscious. He called paramedics. They took me to the emergency room of a hospital. I don't remember any of that. But I remember they're lifting me from the, the ambulance onto the gurney in the emergency room. And I came to to hear the emergency room nurse saying, Now, just lay back and take deep breaths. And I was coming out of total oblivion. And I said, Honey, that's lie back. I will lie back and take deep breaths. And I passed out again. When I came to, I could not shut up. I said, you see, dear, you say it so many times every day, you really must learn to say it correctly. (laughs) My son was putting his hand over his eyes. He was saying, she doesn't do this to total strangers usually. Really, she doesn't. Fortunately, the nurse thought it was funny. Fortunately. But my point in telling you is that when I have a relapse, I'm going to straighten out the world one more time. <laughs> and I have to watch for it because when my defenses are down, that's how I get it, you know. Oh, of course, now, I talk the talk better than I walk the walk. Of course I do. And I, I walk the walk better than I feel the feeling. But I'm still the best blanche I have ever had. And, you know, I live on the growing edge just as a rankest newcomer. The challenges I am facing are just as new and scary to me as they are to you who have been in five years or ten or twenty. Uh, I still need a hand to hold while I look around corners to see what's next. The difference is I have had a little more practice in picking up the tools. But still, if I can't, one of you will pick them up and hand them to me, and I count on that. I have to talk about the children. I think they're all right today. Thank you. and I mean literally thank you. Uh, both my children have been married and divorced. I love to tell the stories about it, so I will. Um, my daughter is a journalist. She's political editor for the St. Petersburg Times in Florida. Uh, we, we are achievers. We do things, you know. Uh, it's a trade-off. You miss some things, too, when you do that. But when she was getting married, and this was some years ago, she was talking with her father and me about it. And uh, now it's your fault, because in that subversive organization, Alatine, you taught her she could be who she is, too. (laughs) And she said to her father and me, there's no rule that says your attendant has to be a girl. And the person I want to stand with me is my brother. Well, I opened my mouth to give them the benefit of my wisdom. But before I could say anything, her brother said... Hey, that's cool. I've never been a bride's person before. (laughs) And the groom spoke up and said, Well, actually, I'm closer to my sister than I am my brother. And it would balance the wedding party if she stood with me. So we had a best woman and a man of honor. (laughs) And it was a beautiful wedding. And I sat there and cried as the mother of the bride is allowed to do. And I was thinking... Sobriety, you know, made this possible. My son is a commercial photographer in Dallas. He, uh, too, does, of course, brilliant and sensitive work. There's nothing doting about me. Uh, He has won two CLIOs, which is the highest award you can win in advertising. And he was the first person outside an agency, a freelance photographer in this country to win one, and so the Dallas newspapers made a big fuss over it, you know, the trade journals. And do you know, after his name, they never once put a comma and said, the son of. (laughs) I was glad you had taught me that the source is not the same thing as the channel, you know, and I knew what his source was. We date the people we meet, and he meets models, and uh, for a long time, before the airlines were deregulated. If you left Texas, you went through Dallas first. You still do nine times out of ten. We have always said that when you die before you go to heaven or hell, you'll go to Dallas first, and they will route you. And I used to have two or three hours there. Now I do well to make connections, but he would come meet me. This is back before I had to go through a secretary to get to him, you know. And he'd have one of these gorgeous young models with him. and They all had legs up to their armpits, they weighed 36 pounds, you know, it was just (laughs) depressing is what it was. My kids have not done any drugs or drinking. I have reared two classic enablers, two quintessential caretakers. My daughter says if you put her down in a room full of a thousand men just dressed just alike and, and one is dysfunctional, she'll find him. I have a friend who says he can sniff them through lead, (laughs) you know, why not, her mother always did. They have all the problems that kids have who grew up in an alcoholic home. I'm not trying to pretend that everything's ginger peachy, but you know, that's their story. And and I don't feel free to tell it. I do want to tell you, though, that six years ago, my son, who had always been my loving, caring child, the one who would send me flowers on his birthday and say, thank you for having me, decided he would do better without any connection with his family anymore. And so he wrote and told us that. And he said, don't call me, don't come, don't write to me. I thought it would kill me. It didn't. What you do with pain like that is get it to a level where you can live with it, but it never goes away. I don't know anything worse than losing a child. Sometimes I think death would be easier. I wouldn't have to have this little glimmer of hope that I have. He, uh, I don't know how he is. I assume he's all right. Surely, if he, were, you know, something bad happened, someone would have to notify me. I. Uh, I ask everywhere I go, if you run out of something to pray about, I would appreciate your praying about this relationship. He doesn't blame anybody, nor should he. I was a terrific mother. He doesn't blame anybody. He says he doesn't know why. He just knows that the word family creates rage in him. And it isn't just me, it's everyone in the family he has nothing to do with. I need to hurry. Charles and I lost our marriage in 1980 for a variety of reasons that I don't go into from a microphone, but uh, you had told me that marriages made in sickness don't always survive health, and I didn't believe you, but they don't always. We uh, didn't have anything to go back to, you know. People who love us want to know, so I always add that, no, he did not leave me for another woman. I would have killed both of them, and you would have a different speaker today. (laughs) And no, I didn't throw him out for another man. And no, he did not resume drinking. He would have had 24 years sobriety in July of 1988, but he died in April of that year. He died of oat cell carcinoma, smoking four packs a day. Uh, we had been in intermittent, you know, communication all that time, and he called me from the hospital. And the last words we said to each other were, "I love you." There was never a lack of love. But if you've lived this long without knowing that love is not always enough, you haven't been paying attention. I was astonished at the intensity of my grief. We had been apart then, what, eight years? I did not, I wasn't prepared for it to hurt so much. I'm not remotely Catholic. I grew up Southern Baptist, you know, toe tapping kind, uh, Bible belt kind. And yet I didn't feel unmarried until after his death. I was really married when I was married. Well, back to the divorce. I don't know why something toxic happened when we tried to relate to each other that didn't happen when we related to other people, but that was the way it was. And we did release each other with dignity and respect. We really did. There was no villain, no one wearing a black hat. I can't tell you we were friends. Friends joy in each other's presence. You know, uh, friends share feelings. If we could have done that, we could have stayed married. Nobody wants divorce. And yet I never felt more direct guidance, I never felt more helpfully Al-Anon than when I realized I I too would go to any lengths for my own recovery. After a long marriage, a divorce is like an amputation. It may be essential for survival, but the agony is intense. And sometimes there was phantom pain, you know, where the relationship used to be. And I'll always regret not the divorce, but the necessity for it, as I would regret the necessity for an amputation. Well, you had said to me, suffering must not be wasted, that I don't back God into a corner, shake my finger in his face and say, why me? I mean, why not me, huh? You said I should ask, what am I supposed to understand? So that's what I asked. And I got a few answers. I learned that God and I are enough. And uh, for a woman of my generation, this is a biggie. I learned that I was a whole person without a man. And I don't have to know what the future holds because I know who holds the future. If you love learning and you hit a time of stress, you go back to school. So I began investigating graduate schools. If you, if you love teaching, you do some counseling. And I thought I ought to get a piece of paper that said I could. And because you told me I deserved the best, I picked out the longest, hardest master's program I could find, of course. And it was at the University of Texas in Austin, and it was 54 hours and a thesis, three years. I said to my children, three years, do you know how old I'll be in three years if I go get a master's degree? And my son said, how old will you be in three years if you don't? <laughs> so I pulled up Roots and I left my comfort zone and I sold the house my kids grew up in. And I moved to Austin. Now you would have laughed to see me in graduate school. I kept wanting to teach the class, honey. What the professor meant was... <laughs> I also wanted to correct their grammar, but I don't do that when I'm conscious... And in 1985, I got the master's degree in counseling psychology and went to work for Austin Community College part-time as a counselor. But I was self-supporting through my own contributions, and so I had to work full-time, and uh, that's when I went to work in the little country school that I told you about. I stayed at Austin Community College for five more years teaching one class. It was a class in human sexuality, met twice a week. <laughs> and, uh, That was fun. Uh, It had to be taught by a counselor. Interesting to be interviewed for a job like that. How do they ascertain that you're qualified to teach a sex class? I mean, you can't major in it in college, although you and I know people who tried. I think what got me the job was when they said, how did you learn about sex in your family of origin? And I told them very truthfully that I have an aunt the one whose funeral I just attended. I have an aunt I said who's the matriarch of the family. And when I was growing up, she used to say to my mother, when it's time to tell Blanche Marie the facts of life, let me do it, you'll make it sound entirely too exciting. (laughs) But my mother told me thank you. (laughs) change is very hard for me I'm surely not the only one in here for whom that's true and the story I like to tell to illustrate it is that there's a difference in counseling and and teaching and I have had I had trouble with the boundary there and the story that illustrates it best was my first week on the job in this new school a mother called and her first grader was having trouble on the school bus and she said I wish you'd talk to him see what's going on brought him into my office darling little boy I said, tell me what happens on the school bus. Well, he said, those kids pester me. I said, oh, what do you do? Well, I don't use dirty words. And I said, well, I'm glad to hear it. What do you do? Well, he said, he reached over and got my tablet. You know, very laboriously, tongue between the teeth, he wrote H-S-I-T. He said, I wrote that down. I said, huh? then what? Well, I showed it to them. I said, yeah. He said, well, they couldn't read it. Well, up until now, I was fine. But I was a fire horse hearing the bell. I said, darling, you didn't spell it right. That's why here. Let me show you. This is what I was crossing the T before I thought, oops. <laughs> this isn't what they hired me to do. Nowhere in my job specifications did it say teach obscenities to six-year-olds. But if he ever needs to use the word again, he knows how to spell it. Uh, We just don't wave a misspelled word in front of an English teacher. I've always hoped when he got home that day, nobody said, what did you learn in school today? (laughs) But I learned to make changes, and I've made some, and I will close by telling you about those. To my surprise, I was very happy living alone. I hadn't known I would be. I had gone from mom and daddy to a dormitory at college to mom and daddy to a husband. I had never lived alone, and I really did learn to like it. And I have to say this carefully. I am not young, and I have never been beautiful, but I like men a great deal, and I'm comfortable with them. And there has always been one or two men kind enough to care for me, and during... The Eleven years after my divorce, I had, I had some wonderful relationships, you know, that I just wouldn't have missed for anything. I believe God sends us the people we need when we need them. But I had been hanging out for a while with Bob Miller. And, uh, oh, that once a year we talked about getting married. And whoever brought it up depended on the other one to say, oh, I don't know, things are fine the way they are. <laughs> so that's how that's how we were doing. We later decided that happy people maybe make the best husbands and wives. We didn't either one have a loose umbilical cord that we were trying to plug into someone for a life support system, you know? We were together because we wanted to be, not because we had to be. And it was October 31st, Halloween 1991. We were talking on the phone and I was getting ready to go to Tulsa to talk at a convention. And I said, uh, your 25th AA birthday is in just five weeks. I think we ought to do something really special to celebrate the 25th. What would you like to do? And he said, I was thinking of getting married. Well, now, it wasn't his turn. (laughs) And uh, I almost said, to whom? Um... (laughs) But he went on talking. He said, uh, I've talked to my three children, my accountant, my lawyer, and my sponsor, and they all think it's a good idea. (laughs) Now, is that a romantic proposal or what? I mean, could you turn down a man who proposed (laughs) it? I said, let me talk to some people, too. And I did. And uh, Monday I said, let's do it. Well, if I were 20 years old, you'd have sworn I was pregnant. It was a hurried-up wedding. Bob says if he hadn't raced me into getting married, I would have done what I always do with a new situation. I read 10 or 12 books about it. I talk to some people. I write extensively in my journal. And then he says I would have backed out. So he didn't give me time to do that. He had a church and a minister. He was a very ardent Episcopalian. Now, I told you I grew up Southern Baptist. I think Episcopalians are a little aerobic. You know, stand, sit, kneel, stand, sit, kneel, stand, sit. <laughs> I was so clumsy, but, but I blundered through, nonetheless. <laughs> there were people unkind enough to suggest that we have them play Amazing Grace as we went down the aisle out of deference to our age, but we didn't. I loved his minister. and planning the wedding, I said, it's a little neighborhood church, I said, though. How many people will your church hold? And he said, 120 Episcopalians, 144 Baptists. Well, I walked right into it. I said, why more Baptists? And he said, they're narrower.
1: <laughs>
0: That's all right, they don't know how to sing. <laughs> We were married in December In two months later, February, we bought a house, beautiful house, 20-foot ceilings, red carpets. Come see me if you're around that part of Texas. And in March he became ill. Now, I knew that he carried Hepatitis B and it flared up once in a while. We thought we knew it would eventually kill him, but we thought maybe we had 10 or 12 years before it would. No one had ever suggested that he was in any danger of dying. But in June of that year, the doctor told us it was terminal and he would not recover. And I began to hang on to you with my fingernails, you know. And for the next year and a half, he was bedridden. And of course, I was with him, or I hired someone, a professional, to be with him when I came to do what I do for al Because, as we were talking about earlier at dinner, sometimes that's our decision and we have to make it, and that's the one we made. And he was adamant that I should continue to do this. He died December 28th, eight months ago. I want to tell you about his death because I learned so much watching him die. I had learned so much watching him live. He never complained. I got exasperated, when he never did. And he was never out of sorts. And that morning, Christmas was over. My daughter was still there. A couple of his kids were still there. He said, it's time to go. And I said, Bob, you have fought this long and hard, and if you want to give up, I will understand. He said, I don't want to leave you. And I said, oh, you'll never leave me. Besides, I said, it's hard to say goodbye. And he said, there's only one thing harder. I, of course, said, what, And he said, never to have said hello. And I have thought of that when I have shared my story since then. What a marvelous opportunity we had this weekend to say hello. I hope we won't miss it. I think... Uh, sometimes we miss the presence God gives us because we don't recognize them the way they're wrapped, you know? I think he probably gives me gifts all the time that I fail to open because I don't know that's what it is. So I want to say hello to you this weekend. I don't want later to think how sad never to have said hello. You would have not laughed. Maybe you would have at his funeral. The variety of people There was the bank president and there were the tattooed bikers, (laughs) you know. There was the president of Rotary and there were the young men who worked for him. And I sat there thinking of that line from the A-book that says we are people who would not ordinarily have mixed. Besides what I do for Al-Anon, I will be doing some group work at the school where I used to be the counselor. And I have t- taken hospice training. Do you know what that is? And I will start in November facilitating the children's bereavement group for the local hospice. I can do that. And I will love doing it. And so I'm off the streets and out of trouble. <laughs> I want to close with an al promise. Did you know we had one? We do. It's in our literature. <laughs> it says, today, this very moment is all you're sure of. And that flashing instant has gone to join the past before you're even aware of it. With this dizzy spin of time, the only safe way to make each moment count is to make Al-Anon responses habitual. You cannot go wrong following Al-Anon's teachings. With these teachings, there's no regret for yesterday. There's guidance for today. There's hope for tomorrow. So that's the promise with which I leave you on this Saturday afternoon. I can promise you through through the program that you'll have no regret for yesterday and you'll have guidance for today and best of all, you will have hope for tomorrow.